Well, hello, Door of Hope Northeast. This is Josh Wilder coming to you from my clandestine office that is located right next to the mug wall, so it's not that clandestine. But I'm here to continue our series um, in, well, I guess multiple places, but a series that is designed to help us um, think biblically about the continuing conversation and discuss it and discussions that are happening around race in this country. And this week, uh, I have the perhaps unenviable task of talking about uh, our story and the sort of dark side to our history and how we reckon with that. <clears throat> and so I want to do that First, by asking you to do something I'm probably never going to ask you to do again, certainly not from the pulpit, and that is I'm going to ask you to get out your smartphone and look something up. Now, don't get too excited because this is something that's going to make you uncomfortable if you choose to do it, and if you have a weak stomach or you're overwhelmed or for whatever reason, you don't have to do this, but I encourage us to to try in so far as we're able to get comfortable being uncomfortable. We're doing a series around a topic that is uncomfortable for most people. And the only way for us to become more comfortable is to actually keep leaning in. So I encourage you to do this. Do a Google image, image search of um, the lynching of Reuben Stacy. And as you're looking that up, you're going to see something that is uh, gruesome and very off-putting. What you're, what you're going to look at or what you are looking at uh, in one of the various images is going to be a black man hanging from a rope uh, from a tree and a whole bunch of white onlookers in various postures and attitudes looking on um, men, women, and children. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting that we look at this to just simply to make you uncomfortable or to punch anybody in the gut or anything like that. But I, I want this to seem more real to us than just a topic, than just a conversation. This is something that really happened. Reuben Stacy ended up like this for the, for the supposed crime of... Um, of threatening a woman with a penknife. That's what he was accused of. He was neither tried nor convicted. Uh, and this was how his life here on earth ended. And um, this really happened. It's just as real as the death of George Floyd four months ago. And it's just as real as the death of Jay Danielson here in Portland a few weeks ago. And these events, the death of Reuben Stacy and George Floyd and Jay Danielson, these are all connected to one another. And they're all connected not just because they were violent and because they were unnecessary, but they're connected because they are part of our history. Uh, if, if we hadn't had the history that gave us the Reuben Stacy incident, we likely would not have the George Floyd incident or the Jay Danielson incident. 
So history matters and how we look at it matters. Now, I want to ask you, maybe I've already blown it. Maybe I've already stepped on too many toes and you're angry with me. Uh, that's understandable. I'm probably gonna make mistakes. Cameron's gonna make mistakes. We're not professionals um, when it comes to having these kinds of conversations and we're, we're gonna make blunders and we're gonna have to say we're sorry. So if you are upset by what I have said or what I will say, um, Feel free to email me, just if you do. Uh, what I'm probably going to do is ask to sit down with you and actually have a conversation um, from one human to another. So so be prepared with that if, you're, if you get um, upset and feel like you gotta write me something. Uh, but to, to actually get into to, um, to this from a biblical perspective, to see what scripture is trying to say to us, uh, the passage that I chose was from Daniel 9, verses 1 through 19. And if you're only listening to the audio, maybe you, did, there, you didn't hear um, the reading of the scripture. So if you haven't, then I encourage you to pause this and have someone in your group read Daniel 9, 1 through 19, so that you're familiar with what I'm going to be talking about. I can't cover everything in this passage. I don't have enough time for that. But I'm just gonna, going to highlight three observations from this passage that will help us move forward when we talk about um, when we talk about dealing with the ugliness of our history. And my first observation from this passage is that Daniel is following a, a distinctly Hebrew tradition of actually telling it like it is. Now that may seem surprising to you, um, but that's only because you haven't done a lot of ancient history. If it is. Um, it's very common in ancient histories to cover up virtually everything that will make um, the person doing the writing or their people look bad. And obviously the Hebrews don't do that. Um, but so as, as an example, I wanted to look at this thing called the Behistun um, inscription, which is carved into the side of a mountain in what's modern day Iran. And it's this massive, massive inscription, literally on the side of a cliff. It's 300 feet up off of the ground. It's 50 feet tall and 80 feet wide. And just to just so you get a picture of the the magnitude of this um, inscription, I actually called down to the rose garden to find out how big the jumbotron was, and. Um, I couldn't get a hold of anybody, so I, I just looked up what's the standard size of a jumbotron, and um, it turns out that that jumbotron, like the one in the in the Moda Center, is roughly a little over one eighth of the size of this inscription. So it's about the size of eight jumbotrons put together. So clearly, whoever did this wanted to get people's attention. And so far as we can tell, the person who did this was a guy named Darius the Great, who we know from the story of Daniel. He's the guy who put Daniel in the lion's den. So this is a, a roughly the same time as, Dan, as, Daniel, um, as Daniel's life as well. But I just wanted to read to you a little bit of it so you can get a feel for this is how history is told by people outside of the Bible. So his inscription begins, I am Darius, the great king, the king of kings, the king of Persia, the king of countries. And that's how it opens up. And then he goes on to describe 23 different countries that Ahura Mazda, his god, has given him rulership over. And then he goes on to 
to recount how he conquered um, these va- these various lands. Um, and it, it follows a similar pattern with each one. It's cyclical, so I won't I won't bore you with reading through the whole thing, but I'll just go through one very briefly so you can get a feel for it. So in the second column, it says this, quote, says Darius the king, Dardashish by name, an, an Armenian, my subject, him I sent forth to Armenia. Thus I said to him, go the rebellious army, which does not call itself mine, smite it. Afterwards, Dardashish went away. When he came to Armenia, afterwards the rebels came together and went against Dardashish to engage in battle. By the grace of Ahura Mazda, my army smote that rebellious army utterly. Says Darius the king a second time, the rebels came together and went against Dardashish to engage in battle. By the grace of Ahura Mazda, my army smote that rebellious army utterly. Says Darius the king, a third time the rebels came together and went against Dardashish to engage in battle. By the grace of Ahura Mazda, my army smote that rebellious army utterly. So the question is, is this, is this actual history? Did it go down the way that Darius says that it went down? Well, yes and no. If we take a closer look, we'll see where he's kind of fudging things a bit, right? So he, he makes this claim. After each time, he says, my army smote that rebellious army utterly. Really? You smote them utterly? Well, then why did you have to go do that a second time? There wouldn't be anybody left. Why did you have to do it a third time? So clearly something is going on here where he's uh, either lost the battles, the first two, but he won the third one, or he didn't smite them utterly like he says that he did. So either way, we have some fudging going on, kind of like saying, these protests are mostly peaceful, or these protests are utter mayhem. Um, What he's doing is something more akin to journalism than actual history. And what I mean by that is he is uh, overlaying certain facts so that they're kind of under the radar and not really known by magnifying certain other facts. And why would he do this? Well, because although he says that his god, Ahura Mazda, has given him rulership clearly over all these nations, his rule is anything but secure. That's why he has so many rebellions he has to put down. Likely, he's tired of having to put down these rebellions, and so he spends an enormous amount of energy and resources writing an inscription on the side of a mountain. And if if that was just common knowledge, if everybody just knew he's the king of all the kings of the land, he wouldn't need to he wouldn't need to put forth all those resources to actually inform people of this fact. So clearly he's trying to manipulate people's perceptions so that they will not rebel against him and his rulership will truly be secure. Now, let's contrast this with the way that the Jews tell their history. Let's see. um, Is it victory upon victory, smiting everyone utterly? Uh, No, it's failure upon failure. From Adam in the garden to Noah and his son Ham, from Abraham to Jacob, um, from the children of Israel murmuring in the desert to... Uh, the judges like Samson or the kings like Ahab and Manasseh, everyone is an utter failure. Even the, the good ones like David have their things to be ashamed of. They have their shameful moments. So 
for whatever reason, the Hebrews do not shy away of their warts. They don't have a problem telling it like it is. They cannot, they know that they cannot boast of their moral superiority over others, even though they're chosen by God. So their being chosen by God doesn't make them better than everyone else. More than anyone else, they're saying how they're worse than everyone else. And that actually, that actually is the context for this passage here in Daniel. Where Daniel is, is he's actually in Babylon because uh, his people, including himself, have been exiled from the land. And this was actually predicted by Moses. And Daniel knows about it. We actually see this in, in verse 11. Daniel mentions that the curse of the covenant, which was given through Moses, had, had fallen upon them. And that's why they were in uh, a land of exile. In Deuteronomy 28, Moses goes through what are called the blessings and the curses and the covenant. And that is, if you obey, you will have these blessings. And if you break the covenant, these curses will come upon you. And those all revolved around things like, um, you'll have plenty of crops. Your kids will live to a ripe old age, and so will you. You'll have peace with your neighbors. You'll have peace on your borders. You'll rule over your enemies. And of course, if you don't keep the covenant, then it's the opposite thing. Your enemies will rule over you. Your kids will die young, and so will you. you your crops will fail. Um, your cattle won't, won't produce young. Um, and then the, the last thing in there, in verse 64, it says, The Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you will serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your ancestors have known. So Daniel is aware of this, and he's identifying the fact that they are where they are because of their failures. And he mentions specifically in this passage their failure to listen and to obey. He calls their acts wicked, rebellious. He even calls them treacherous. Now, so Daniel is following a Hebrew tradition of coming clean, telling it exactly like it is. And as a side note, this continues into the New Testament, right? We see this in the in the book of Acts and in the Gospels where the, the people who are who are either writing this or or they're telling the story for someone else to write the apostles they don't make themselves look that great they have all their warts in those stories too so this is a hebrew tradition daniel is writing the truth about what has actually happened that's the first observation second one is that daniel recognizes his connection to that history. Even though it's shameful, he doesn't try and distance himself from it. So notice in this passage how often Daniel says, we or us. He uses this we us language. He doesn't say they did that back then. I've been good, but they've been. No, it's we. We did this. Um, And Daniel was a child when he went into exile. So clearly he did not, he was not part of the generations of, uh, of sin, the generation upon generation upon generation of breaking of the covenant before the exile, and yet he went into exile, and he still says, we did this. He takes a sort of collective responsibility over it. One of my professors in seminary, Chun Long Xiao, says this about um, Daniel's prayer. He says, in such prayers, one stands in solidarity with everyone in the community of faith through time and space, those present now and those who have gone before, those who are here and those who are elsewhere. So Daniel has a sense of collective identity of owning and and belonging to those in the past. 
Now, this brings up a question. Some of you might be saying, but wait a minute. Doesn't God say that he doesn't punish later generations for the sins of former generations? Yes, he does. A great example of this, probably the most um, clear and prominent one, is in Ezekiel 18. And in here, God tells us um, a, a sort of parable and says, let's just say there's a man and the man is righteous. He does, goes through the list of all the good things that he does and say he has a son and that son says, I'm not going to do any of that. He does all these wicked things. The son will not get the blessing of the father <clears throat> and that son's curses won't go back to the father. And then he says, say the wicked son has another son. So now we have three generations, a grandson. And say that grandson repudiates his father's ways and is more like his grandfather and obeys the Lord. He says this, quote, When the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So God does not punish later generations for the sins of former generations. But Daniel does not actually contradict this. Uh, Daniel, What Daniel is doing is he is understanding that he wouldn't be where he is if his ancestors had not done what they had done. He recognizes that he's, his situation, though he didn't create it, he has to do something about it nevertheless. It doesn't mean it's punishment. It's just the situation he finds himself in. God has not shielded him from the consequences of the sins of his fathers. So now Daniel has this difficult hurdle to climb that he never put there. And he doesn't complain about it. He just does what needs to be done. And so that brings me to the third observation I have here. And that is that, that Daniel acts according to the situation that he is in. Doesn't complain about how he got there, but he owns it and acts. And while he acts, we will see that he's actually trusting, not in his obedience to God in the moment, but he's trusting in the mercy of God. So they are in exile because they have been unfaithful to the covenant. But God has been faithful in sending them into exile. God said, if you break the covenant, I will be faithful to make sure this happens to you. And God was faithful in doing that. And God would be faithful should they turn to him and obey. God would be faithful to bring them back. And this is, this is spoken of in Deuteronomy and in Kings. And so I want to read a little bit from a passage in Kings where Solomon, when he's praying this prayer of dedication um, after he finishes the temple, he describes just how, um, just how people like Daniel, when they're in exile, they could come back to the Lord. It says this in 1 Kings 8, um, verse 46. And if they sin against you, meaning Israel, if they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to, the, to an enemy, so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. Yet if they turn in their heart in the land to which they are being carried captive, and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, I'm going to skip some of this because it, it gets kind of redundant. 
Um, it says, Then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you. And grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive, that they may have compassion on them. So Daniel knows about this, and so he's doing exactly what what he's been instructed to do. If you're if you're in exile and you realize everyone has sinned, you need to turn turn to the Lord from the place where you are in exile, turn towards him, towards his temple, towards his land and repent. Turn your hearts towards him. So that's what Daniel is doing. But Daniel also knows that his his mere doing that is not is not going to change, undo all of what has happened in the past. He knows that Israel has incessantly failed to keep the covenant. He knows that Israel has not done the righteousness that would be required for God to bless them according to the terms of the covenant. Even his one prayer is not the same as doing all the righteousness of the law that would bring them blessing and bring them out of exile. So, what Daniel knows is that they are incapable of doing what's required to receive God's blessing. So all they have left is God's mercy. That's it. All they have is God's mercy. He's hoping that somehow God will circumvent the terms of the covenant, work around it in some way, and bless them, even though they don't deserve it. And that's why in the end... He says this, O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, pay attention and act. Do not delay for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people who are called by your name. See, Daniel is trusting in God's sovereignty, not in his prayer. And his knowledge of God's sovereignty is what empowers him to pray. It doesn't paralyze him. It doesn't stifle him. So let's bring this into uh, what this might mean for us today. Um, First, I think if you haven't noticed, we have a very difficult time telling the truth these days Uh, from, from, say, uh, low-level media bias to outright egregious bias to full-on fake news, our perceptions are being manipulated because we as a society are no longer speaking the truth. If we ever have, we certainly aren't now. Now, what, what inhibits us from doing that? What is holding us back from actually telling the truth? Why do we, uh, why do we try and avoid this? Well, there are innumerable reasons, and I am not going to try, nor do I have the time, to try and impress you with um, the various nuances and things that I notice that are actually going on. Um, But just highlight one of them because I think it's extremely relevant for us right now. And that is this. One of the big reasons why we have a hard time telling the truth and reckoning with our history, one of the reasons why it's so uncomfortable to talk about and why even this sermon series is uncomfortable probably for many of you is because of shame. We are driven by shame. And that comes in many forms, but there are two kind of major ones that um, 
that people like you and I probably are ending up in. And the first one, I'm going to say, comes probably for more people who are activists and and more left-leaning politically. And if that's the... If you're part of that camp, probably something like this happens. Uh, They will rather self-righteously excoriate people in the past for their sins. They will magnify their failures to such an extent that there were no successes or virtually no successes and as though we haven't we haven't gone anywhere in the last 400 years um, along with that will be the impugning of motives so it isn't just these were relatively uh, honest but fallen um, but fallen people who made mistakes, who were blind um, in certain ways. But no, these people are evil. They said they cared about freedom. They said they cared about equality. But really, they were just doing that to try and get more power for themselves. Now, you're probably familiar with, with, um, with that line. Um, but maybe, maybe you guys, hopefully you aren't aren't the one doing it. But that's a way of not really telling the truth about history. But how is that connected to shame? Here's how, here's how I see it um, being connected to shame. We all know that we are, that we make mistakes, that we are broken, and that we have things to be ashamed of. And a great way to allay our feelings of shame is to find somebody else who's way worse than I am and call attention to their failures. That way I don't have to think about or deal with mine. That's one reason why that sort of thing is happening. If we can push the shame on someone else and get everyone's attention that way, even get my own attention on that, then I don't have to think about the things that I personally uh, am ashamed of. And another side of that is actually that when we feel shame about something, we want to make things right. And so there's this sense of, um, I don't know if you would call it uh, punitive, but there's a sense of penance. I, I'm, I am making things right by shaming other people for what they have done. Um, and both of these things are really, all we're doing is, is pushing aside our own shame. So that's, that's one form of it. But there's another form that, uh, that is also pretty common, and that is to uh, not necessarily pillory and, and blame shift, but to, um, to simply feel shame for, um, for our history, for our past. And so we sort of magnify, uh, you know, magnify the successes of history. So someone comes along talking about slavery, Jim Crow, redlining, and um, and they'll say something like, yeah, but you know how many white people died in the Civil War to free the slaves? Oh, you know how many white people like tried to pass legislation so that um, so that there would be more equality. Now, these are like those things are true, but they're ways of actually not talking about and not dealing with the rather ugly side of history. And I don't think it's really controversial that we do that because of a sense of shame about what has happened and that we actually need to own that in some sort of way. So there's a sense of downplaying. It's once again, elevating certain facts so that 
uh, these other not so not so pretty ones can sort of get shoved to the side. But we can't get away from this. There, there's there's no way out. Um, even intersectionality, which is among other things, a way of shifting blame towards certain groups and away from others. Uh, there there is no refuge for us. And maybe you aren't. Maybe you're listening to this and you aren't even American. I'm not black. I'm not white. I'm not American. So uh, if you look at the picture of Reuben Stacy, if you're an American, that's your history. But you might say, like, I'm not American. That isn't my history. But guess what? At that lynching, those white people there, probably just about all of them were in church on Sunday. And probably at least one of them was preaching the sermon. So this isn't just a matter of American history. This is a matter of church history. And even if you didn't have Reuben Stacy, we would still have the witch hunts, the Inquisition, the religious wars, the Crusades. We would still have plenty of black eyes and shameful things in our past to deal with. So we don't have a way out. Now, some of you, I still may not have convinced some of you. There still may be some of you saying, look, I haven't done any of that stuff. That's what they did, and that's I haven't done I haven't done any of that. Okay, fine. Like that's that's totally fair, and that is true. That is a fact. But we have to acknowledge that we inherited a situation. We inherited a world from the past. We aren't in a neutral place. We actually live in a time where if you go throughout life simply minding your own business. People are getting run over by the fact that you are minding your own business instead of doing something other than what you're doing. We are still culpable. We have some things to do. Just like Daniel was in exile for sins he did not commit. He knew he had to deal with the situation of being in exile. He couldn't just sit back and blame someone else and say, not my fault, not my problem. He did something. So ask yourself, have you done enough? Have you prayed enough? Have you prayed for the president? Have you prayed for the police? Have you prayed for BLM? Have you prayed for the far left and the far right? Like, have we actually, is our nose clean? Just because somebody else did it in the past doesn't mean that we have nothing to repent of in the present. We have our own things to own. If you struggle with this, perhaps this quote from Dostoevsky would help. He says this. Remember particularly that you cannot be a judge of anyone. For no one can judge a criminal until he recognized that he is just such a criminal as the man standing before him. And that he perhaps is more than all men to blame for that crime. When he understands that, he will be able to judge. Though that sounds absurd... It is true. If I had been righteous myself, perhaps there would have been no criminal standing before you. You see what he's saying? He's, he's saying if you think they are the problem, the problem is some them, you don't get it. Because our actions are what enables them to be who they are and do what they do in whatever the wicked way is that they do it. 
And now some of you who are perhaps more the activist types are, are saying, yeah, that's right. That's why we got to go out there and we got to fight them. You know, we got we to gotta do something. Now Dostoevsky goes on. He says, if the evil doing of men moves you to indignation and overwhelming distress, even to desire for vengeance on the evildoers, shun above all things that feeling. Go at once and seek suffering for yourself as though you were guilty of that wrong. Accept that suffering and bear it and your heart will find comfort. And you will understand that you too are guilty. For you might have been a light to evildoers and you were not a light to them. If you had been a light, you would have lightened the path for others too. And the evildoer might perhaps have been saved by your light from his sin. That's the reality is whoever they are that we blame, our actions actually prevent them from coming to their senses. We are someone else's they. And the only way to really bring things together is to actually, like Dostoevsky says, imagine yourself in their, in their shoes. Try and understand what they are suffering, what's brought them to where they are. We won't win by defeating them, but by trying to actually imagine ourselves as them and to own the fact that we do things that make others react in the way that they do. So now, now that I've probably thoroughly forced you into a corner, saying that there's no way out, which is what preachers are good at, right? I'm doing this so that we can come to Jesus. And here's how I want to do that. We are radically, radically insecure, and rightly so. Because as individuals and as an entire species, we have not done right by God or by each other. And that's in this nation, that's in every nation, that's in the church. Like the Jews, we have failed to live up to the covenant and we live with the consequences. And like the Jews, our only hope is God's mercy. And praise Jesus, he came to bring us mercy. We have the cross to look at. Jesus came and shed his blood so he could take all of our shame away. We can walk forward without shame. We can look at the past and repudiate it, but not be afraid of it, and not feel awkward by it. Because the reality is that God is that good that he would take on. He would take the blame. He would take our shame. He would cleanse us and say that we go free, and we no longer have anything to be ashamed of. Romans 8 says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The sins of our ancestors and our own present sins have been known by him from all eternity, and yet he still loves us and wants us. Have you tasted and seen that he is good? Have you really tasted this? Are you walking in, in freedom and avoiding, or, or, or are, you, are you avoiding, still avoiding, um, talking about, these difficult things or engaging in the difficult things because you feel shame. 
If so, come to him now and taste again and see that he is good. As we take communion, be reminded that his shed blood and his broken body have cleansed us. And so we no longer need to walk in shame. If you still feel shame, give it to Jesus right now. Repudiate the past and listen to these words. In the name of Jesus Christ and because of his shed blood, your sins are forgiven. You are free. Now come and drink from the river of his delights and taste and see that he is good. And now we can look back at our shameful past and say, that actually happened. That was horrible. We repudiate that and we want to do everything in our power to make sure that never happens again and to rectify our current situation in the present. You see, because the only way justice can actually be achieved is if we already understand and receive forgiveness. Justice will always overreach and perpetuate the cycle of back and forth, tit for tat. It's only by receiving Jesus' cleansing forgiveness, allowing him to take away our shame, only when that happens will we be empowered to truly face the ugliness of history and also, hopefully, make a difference for the future. So I'm going to pray, and then you guys can take communion and have your discussion. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are so good and so gracious that as your word says that we can feast from your table and drink from the river of your delights, that we can rejoice, that we can rejoice in you and taste and see that you are good, that we can walk in freedom and walk without shame, that we can engage in things that are very difficult because we have nothing to prove and nothing to lose because you've taken all for us and you've given all to us. I pray, Lord, you would empower us this week and empower us right now as we have these discussions to be courageous and not to be driven by fear and shame, but by the joy that comes from truly being forgiven by you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.